to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. Today we're talking to Harvard alum, Duke University professor and co-director of Duke's Story Lab, Eileen Chow, about how she uses storytelling and role play to teach about Chinatowns and Chinese diasporas. Professor Chow is author of the forthcoming Chinatown States of Mind, as well as the co-translator with Carlos Rojas of Yuhua's two-volume novel Brothers and the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Chinese Cinemas. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast on iTunes or listen to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and other podcast apps. So you're teaching a class at the moment on Chinatowns, Mm -hmm. Um, but that started when you were here at Harvard. Yes. So how did you come up with the idea of this course in the first place? Harvard didn't have an ethnic studies program, an Asian American studies program, not when I was undergraduate and not when I came back as an instructor. And uh, so when I started as a professor here, I personally was very interested in um, teaching about courses about ethnic studies and Asian American studies, but also I recognized that students wanted it. But I was in East Asian languages department, and one student actually came up to me and says, "Can you teach, you know, an Asian American studies course?" And I said, "Well, I can teach a course as long as it can it also can be intellectually justified in East Asian languages." So I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do, and Chinatown seemed like the perfect intersection. Of being able to think about both very localized communities and local histories, and、um, what it means to be a Chinese person abroad, but also being attentive to the lived histories in a new place, rather than thinking oneself or telling that story as a kind of branching out from China.、Um, the other aspect of sort of designing a Chinatown's course was. Ethnic studies in the U.S. and especially Asian American studies, as part of a larger civil rights movement in the '60s, was of course trying to correct and、uh, make legible histories of people in America who were not included in a kind of mainstream history. But it also meant that the emphasis was on being American, and rightly so. I think, especially for college students, Asian American college students in the 1960s. They tended to be the first generation that came of age. So French, they were first generation college students, but they were also, to the extent that they had long roots in America, they were sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons of working class migrants from China who、um, lived in ghettoized spaces that we think of as Chinatowns. And so that part of the ethnic studies experience was trying to recuperate this. Working class history of Asian Americans in America.、Um, so the curriculum was、uh, rightfully so designed around what it meant to be an American and how to write this untold story of being an American. And it focused on, of course, Filipinos, Japanese, and Chinese Americans because these were the three largest and longest, historically longest groups in the United States. But in that kind of making legible that story. The story that wasn't suppressed as much as ignored or deprioritized was the fact that these spaces did function also as foreign spaces or home spaces where people spoke Chinese, read Chinese language newspapers, participated in community groups that were operated in, in, in native languages like. Uh, you know, Chaozhou or Cantonese or and and Fukienese. We did have a lot of archive documents of that. But even though there were really heroic librarians and archivists who, over the years, really collected that kind of material, it was not seen as part of this very American Studies-oriented Asian American Studies curriculum. 
And I felt, well, Chinatown's made for a perfect reason to need to teach this kind of course in East Asian languages department because it involved language, right? That you, you can get students to read newspapers and whatnot. And finally, um, my colleague then was Philip Kuhn, who passed away you know, fairly recently, but of course he was working on overseas Chinese, a course that Michael Sony then um, took up. And Philip and I always um, guest lecture in each other's classes. And it was both the overlap and the complete dissimilarity in approaches and methodologies was fascinating to both of us, and it was really instructive. This Chinatown's course, you're now teaching at Duke, and mm-hmm. um, you've reintroduced this course there. Mm-hmm. What are the, some of the differences that you found between teaching at Harvard and teaching at Duke right. with the same material? Right. So another reason that Chinatown's um, sprung to mind as a sort of topic for teaching was because the Phillips Brook House at Harvard the, has always had a long time running Chinatown project. In fact, my first year of teaching, um, I was invited by some students to join a kind of a Chinatown after school project where they tutored kids and the kids interviewed me and it was really fun. And so I loved being there. I also, as an undergraduate, you know, eons ago, worked in Quincy School. So worked in one of the um, language schools in Chinatown. Uh, so offering ESL classes for immigrants. So um, I had always volunteered in Chinatown. So because of that connection, I also knew students who knew the space really well. And so my when I first started the course as a kind of experimental uh, seminar, the first time I taught it, um, I opened the, the course to 15 students, and they were all people who had really had experience working in Boston Chinatown, like I had. And so we learned a lot together, but we also had a kind of baseline that we could talk about a Chinatown that we were familiar with. When I moved to Duke, um, and there was a number of years that, you know, I was, I was researching a book on Chinatowns that I'm writing, and then um, but for a number of years, I had set that project aside while I was working on other things. And when I decided to reteach a class at Duke, the students were lovely, but they didn't have that shared commonality. They didn't know a Chinatown, a Chinatown, or any Chinatown in many cases very well. Duke students, um, like all the institutions, a lot of them are from suburban communities. And um, also maybe a lot of them had parents who were professionals. So they grew up in certain kinds of communities that didn't really... Um, see urban spaces as crowded or a kind of competition or kind of ecology of different ethnicities, right? That the history of suburbia in the U.S. is about self-segregation. And so that was not visible to them, right? The way in which urban spaces are these crowded spaces. And so when I started teaching it, I realized I had to do that homework. I had to do that kind of work for them to say, let's talk about the kinds of compromises you have to make when you're talking about urban spaces. And that emphasis on the politics of space and urban geography became a much more prominent aspect of my course. I suppose that's interesting because that's a, a ground zero, or a starting right. point that you have to then right. allow the students to really reflect on their own experience before you start yes. talking about yes. So I should explain that I'm a very interactive teacher, so even for a 200-person class or whatnot, I get people doing lots of things in class. It's not never a passive lecture. But the first thing we do in the class is I pass out index cards on the first day, and I just ask them a question, which is, how did you get here today? I say, take that question however you would like. And people answer, this year I had someone talk about the Big Bang Theory. People talk about, you know, sort of primatology. But there are also a lot of people who talk about the shuttle bus that took them from their dorm to the classroom. But that's the idea, is I want people to reflect upon 
the journey to this particular moment in time in this classroom? And how did you get here today? I mean, of course, you know, there, there are always a number of students who do talk about families or if they're uh, first generation or second generation Americans talking about, uh, you know, where their parents came from. And of course, now on campuses, there are a lot of international students. So in doing that exercise, we bring out some of the three sort of main theoretical implications or streams in the class. And one is, of course, migrancy and the kind of story of migrancy. So a migrancy could mean from your dorm bed to the classroom, right? Which actually one kid who's a frosh, and this year my classroom was near the freshman dorms, and he said, I literally rolled out of my bed and kind of came here um, and made it to class. And I said, it's 3 p.m. <laughs> this is a little strange of you, but, um, but it was lovely. And the assignment is also not write a narrative of how you got here, draw a picture of how you got here today. And the second thing I asked them to do once they draw a picture is, this is of course the think, pair, share kind of paradigm in teaching, but um, that they turn and try to explain or have someone explain what their picture is about. And I said that the second really challenging aspect of migrancy is of course interpretation and uh, speaking in a foreign tongue or having your story become legible to someone else and to explain or that they can understand what you're trying to say. And that's why not everyone can draw, but that's the point that, you know, you challenge people to think about, you know, what is it that you can convey in medium that is perhaps not fluent for you? You know, very few people can draw very well, right? Or re very realistically. And also in sort of thinking about the history of migrancy is dislocation and transportation. How did you get here? By bus, by car, someone said by Uber, um, uh, by bike, you know, that the ease and difficulty of transport is a huge part of how we think about any story of diaspora migrancy. I always always tell my students, you know, when's the last time you flew to China and how much did your ticket cost you? I don't know, probably $1,000 round trip for a migrant worker who is led in by a snakehead into New York City. It's probably a commitment of $40,000 to $50,000 minimum, right? So the cost of your travel and your transportation is completely class dependent and context dependent. And so to do this exercise is to think about routes, to think about the ways in which you move from point A to point B and the people who also brought you here. Um, so those are all things that um, I think they open up thinking about place, thinking about dislocation, and thinking about identity in the sense of, are you who you are if you can't tell a story of who you are? So if nobody understands your story, can you then say, this is me? And that's a, a hardship for, for being a migrant, right? So, so that way it opens up the theoretical concepts of the course. A part of this course is also not only storytelling mm -hmm. about yourself, but right. really filling in for somebody else in role play and, right. and trying to embody somebody else's yes. is journey and their right. lived experience. How does the role play feature in this course? The course is very um, reading heavy and we, and because it's multidisciplinary as such a topic demands, you know, we have lots of readings from history, anthropology, sociology, as well as literature, art, film. 
And so the question I always wondered about, and I wonder about this about all pedagogy, but you know, if you just throw a lot of readings and then you kind of do the forum post and standard discussion, how much of it is sinking in? And so one of the things I started exploring was to do a kind of multiplayer role play game that is loosely based on the reacting to the past pedagogical model that was started at Barnard, which is you know playing games of historical moments. But one thing that I found a little frustrating about established reacting to the past games was they had to be kind of set in the historical past and they had pretty rigidly defined notions of fact versus fiction and things like that, which as a literature and film studies, cultural studies person that I always, you know, my eyebrows are always a little raised when it becomes defined without really talking through the complications of the, the ambiguities of that. And so I just decided to write my own game. And um, I wrote a game called LA Chinatown Missing. It's loosely structured around a missing person's case, uh, a young woman who is a college student in LA and who is also a contestant and winner of the Miss LA Chinatown pageant, a pageant that actually exists, and that she had all these various interests and she was also in an inter-ethnic relationship um, with a Latino activist also on campus. And so setting up her identity as a kind of cross-section of her many and multiple affiliations and senses of belonging. And when she goes missing, her family decides to set up a foundation um, with a big chunk of cash and a plot of land in L.A. Chinatown. And students are assigned roles to argue, basically, for the validity of their pet projects to manage the foundation, to honor Laura's memory. The girl's name is Laura. Um, that was an Easter egg of from, you know, the film Nora Laura, but I don't think any of my students caught that. But Slightly over the head. I know, slightly over the I know, slightly <laughs> over. I know. And also from, um, yeah... From Twin Peaks, right? So, but I was like, okay, my references are too old. Nobody got that. <laughs> but um, I was saying, well, you know, Laura in the most famous noir, and they're all like, what are you talking about? But um, so Laura song disappears, and um, the students are all assigned roles that are along the nexus of transnational versus local interests, such as the U.S.-China Business Council versus a local urban planner or a college professor at UCLA or the mayor, and in embodying these roles, what they're asked to do, since this comes at the last quarter of the class, is to take the first nine weeks of reading and say, let me make my arguments in persona by then drawing on all the discussions and lectures and readings that we've done. And the students do probably five to 10 times more work than writing a paper because they're asked to embody these roles, they're asked to make arguments and write proposals and write essays um, both in persona and afterwards, reflecting upon, you know, the kinds of stakes they have in the game, you know, as a particular subjectivity, rather than themselves. And it results in really interesting learning moments. And within the student population, are the majority ethnic minorities? Like, do you have a lot of people of Chinese heritage, for example, taking the course? Um, I do, but the idea of, of being of Chinese heritage is now, as you know, entirely non-monolithic, right? So Duke has a lot of international students. So for them, Asian American history is not important yet, maybe. So when they come into this course, they often feel that they will be the experts in the course because they will have the last word, first and last word on Chineseness. But then they realize that, you know, one of the things I 
emphasize in the course is it's not an interesting course something came from, it's what happens when it gets there, right? So it's not about Chineseness as a kind of authentic origin, but rather the kinds of accommodation and strategies and also the lived experiences of peoples in different places. So for them, it's a learning experience in that way. For Asian American students, understanding their current activism um, and their current anxieties in a larger context of past struggles is also really interesting to them. That uh, a lot of younger Asian Americans, for example, don't know that the model minority, you know, as a kind of pernicious stereotype, you know, positive, but in fact, you know, limiting and also punitive to other ethnicities and as a wedge issue is something that a lot of them have a vague notion of, but it's more interesting for them to think about, for example, that the model minority as a kind of dominant stereotype, in fact, takes away a history of resistance and activism among Chinese communities. I should explain that. I don't know if this is too political, but pre-registration for the course, and it's a fairly popular course since the spring course happened in November. And so I started getting a lot of panicked messages first week of November of people who couldn't get into the class because those people had different priorities or lottery numbers or class priorities in terms of registration. And at first I was, you know, every semester you get these kinds of panic emails. And so I wasn't thinking too seriously about them. But this year it happened to hit I think maybe the same week as the election. And it, it occurred to me that you want to think about the history of how people who are considered marginal and undocumented um, in communities that were essentially ghettos organize themselves to create lives for themselves, to advocate for their communities, come on in. And so I actually doubled the size of the course no as a result of the election. Um, so that was a direct, uh, thanks Trump, but no, that was a direct <laughs> you know, uh, response to that. And that's the point is that, for example, uh, we a lot of people know about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and that it was followed by increasingly stringent ethnicity-based anti-Chinese discrimination laws barring entry. And you know, one thing is of course, filling in that history, understanding what led up to it, but what a lot of students actually don't come in knowing is, for, for example, that the policing mechanism that was created to, to monitor Chinese and to bar entry and to, to make judgments about who could come in, because diplomats and students could always come in, um, is the early precursor of the Immigration Naturalization Services, which of course now is Homeland Security. So the very shape of U.S. immigration and passports and um, border control is premised on policing Chinese. Um, Chinese were also specifically targeted for ethnicity in a way that, you know, we are seeing very uncomfortable echoes of in this whole debate about Muslim ban, right? And one of the things that really singled out Chinese discrimination was um, it was never a nationalities act like, it, you know, the 1920s national. It wasn't uh, from China. It was Chinese from anywhere. So you could be Chinese from Panama, from France, and you were counted in the Chinese quota, which is not true for like if you were German doing a secondary migration. And so I think that to understand that the very history of the U.S. and its legalizations way of thinking about immigrants is premised on a particular set of exclusion laws that were about the Chinese. And perhaps even more surprisingly for my students, 
it wasn't even that the administrative and legal structures were created around discriminating against Chinese. It was that there were over 8,000 lawsuits in the first decade of the Chinese Exclusion Act brought against the, the U.S. government by Chinese. So this idea that Chinese are passive model minority migrants who never fight back and who don't, who aren't political and who don't fight, it, it is itself a myth. And so one of the things that we study a lot of is really thinking about how for generations, immigrants, especially those that we consider undocumented or not quote unquote having a legitimacy in a country, often model the right to have rights. They are the people who really test the boundary of what does it mean to have human rights? What is the baseline that we guarantee about other humans in our midst? And I think that when students who are, say, Asian American, maybe growing up in wealthy suburbs, are confronted with this kind of history, they understand the need for solidarity and alliances in a way that is much more effective than being told, oh, you're a student of color, so you should hang out with other students of color, right? But it's more thinking that it's not a story of exceptionalism as much as both your suffering and your activism has direct implications to how we operate today. And so obviously, you know, the Chinese Exclusionary Act, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. is not part of the mainstream US history curriculum at yes. high school level. Yes. Um, and so, you know, as you say, the, the election and certainly recent politics has really right. engendered a lot of activism um, right. in student populations. How do you think that your students who probably previously didn't know this history, do they feel like they should become more activist after this course? Uh, I don't know if they become more activists after the course, but I hope they understand the stakes a little better. And, you know, especially this year in teaching it, um, immigration just comes up over and over again. And one of the things about teaching and politics in the classroom is you can't assume all your students think like you, even though, you know, there's a stereotype of the liberal professor and the liberal college student, probably. But, you know, um, in a class last semester, um, actually a class on anime, one of my students says, this is a little awkward, but... I voted for Trump and I just wanted to say my tell you my reasons and I afterwards I followed up and wrote an email to him and thanked him for you know feeling comfortable enough to express in a class that was primarily Asian American and also talking about alterity and and sort of subcultures you know so a lot of people who probably weren't that sympathetic to his political views but he felt that it was okay to say how he felt. And, and that's the kind of environment I want to foster. But it does mean that when you're talking explicitly of a course about immigration, right, and mostly undocumented, illegal, so-called illegal immigration, you can't pretend to a false neutral. I will tell my students how I feel about contemporary moments and discussions about migration law, whatnot. But I also repeatedly emphasize that oppositional viewpoints are completely welcome. You just have to defend them, right, just like I have to. You're talking about immigration, mm -hmm. there's been some research to suggest that maybe older Chinese mm -hmm. generations have more strongly voted for President Trump than right. younger generations. Mm -hmm. Do you see that playing out at all with students or with people that you know? Well, you know, what's interesting is anecdotally, I would say my impression is also that, that I know a lot of older Chinese uh, who have voted for Trump or for Republicans for sort of uh, thinking in terms of fiscal reasons and younger Chinese Americans who have not. But in fact, a lot of the post-election polls have shown that that is not. That's anecdotal evidence, but in fact, the polls have not shown that there was any kind of shift really towards the Republican ticket. But 
I do have anecdotally a really, you know, a lot of my students are quite poignant about it. So one student who grew up in Austin, Texas, who is in a very progressive multi-ethnic community, was devastated when her parents told her that they voted for Trump, that they were both Chinese engineers. And, and I said, why were you devastated, you know, beyond the fact that, you know, you voted differently? And she said, because we grew up in such a, you know, multi-ethnic neighborhood, our neighbors, our friends, our, my school teachers, they saw how it works in action. And so why is it that they didn't understand it when it came to thinking about political interests? And she said it's because in recent years, her parents get all their news from WeChat. And so they're all in these sort of virtual circles of other Chinese who spread a lot of fake news. And, and what devastated her was that her parents became more detached from these local communities that they lived in the U.S. and became more attached to these virtual communities and the news sphere of those communities. She said it made her feel even more strongly that she wanted to be a storyteller because she wanted to understand, you know, how technology is both a liberatory force, but also a kind of, you know, siloing force, allowing people to confirm their biases or their prejudices in ways that can be really, you know, antithetical to an open society. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned storytelling. Mm. Um, and obviously you're very involved with the Duke Story Lab. Mm -hmm. And you online are often talking about the power of stories and how storytelling can really help right, right. bring people together. Right. Talk to us a little bit about Story Lab and, and what you envision for it. So I'm a co-director co of this experimental humanities lab at Duke called Story Lab, and Story Lab believes that no story is told alone, that stories foster community. Um, it was started with the premise that if you read any Chronicle of Higher Ed article or a New York Times op-ed, the monthly renewal op-ed of humanities are dying or humanities education, what we're going to do, oh dear, that's the assumption that, you know, the humanities become really an afterthought. But when you really talk to students, you realize people are consuming stories and telling stories more than ever. You know, we're kind of in a golden age of serial television, and people are also fans of various, various forms of stories. Like podcasts. Uh, like podcasts. <laughs> and think about long-form journalism, podcasts, uh, long reads, the ways in which we just soak up storytelling in all forms. And so I said, what is this disconnect between college age or, you know, or community people who are so in love with stories and storytelling, and then us in the humanities saying the humanities are irrelevant. I said the humanities are not irrelevant. They're more relevant than ever. And so Story Lab is actually, we try to bring all sorts of people to the table across disciplines. So we have policymakers, we have scientists, um, drama, dramaturgs, we have creative writers, we have scholars of story. So we think of as English professors, right? But so we also, but lots of people who are practitioners of story. And we try to see how we can talk to each other. Another thing I feel really strongly about is storytelling has become the most trendy and popular way of branding. So it's not like advertising didn't exist before storytelling, but now we think of advertising as storytelling. And that's how the ad industry and the branding industries think of themselves, right? Or storytellers. So in fact, um, on a very pragmatic level, my students get hired all the time because they have storytelling experience and people are always saying, we're looking for content, right? We're looking for content producers, content creators. And so on one hand, you can say, oh, this is very pragmatic. You know, if you study storytelling, you have these viable paths, you know, employment, professions, careers. On the other hand, I really feel strongly that we should not become a service industry. 
that people should be transformed, you know, by being thoughtful and, you know, thinking about stories as also agents of change. And so when we have people who are branding consultants and marketing professors in our lab as well, but then the whole point is that we talk together rather than sniff at them or have them sniff at us, right? But to think that that process of exchange is what brings about story as social transformation. Stories are really, they're a way of conveying what it means to be human in many ways. Yes. And it's kind of what Meryl yes. Streep was saying about the right. arts. Right, you know? right, right, right. That, that is what it means to be a human being. And well, so Umberto you... Eco is like, to, to survive, you must tell stories. I love yeah. how I go to Meryl Streep and you go to Umberto Eco. <laughs> <laughs> But it's absolutely true. Like, um, if you don't have stories to tell, like, wh what are you trying to save, right? You know, who what, are you? Right, who are, who are you? And so, and like back to the whole, if you can't tell a story of who you are, then how do people know you? How do people understand who you are? And also, stories are often told for us. And that's a really important part. And that actually goes back to Meryl Streep. You know, when you think about uh, dominant forms of storytelling, like Hollywood, if there's a way in which the stories are always told for you, do you have a way of entering the narrative? And I don't mean like I'm a Chinese woman of a certain age, therefore I have to see a movie with a Chinese woman of a certain age, but rather it's that are there stories that speak to my experience that you know resonate with me and that help me think through the muddy waters? As what somebody once said, you know, um, the memoir is the gold ring that you forge from the gold that you sift from the muddy river. Um, but, you know, it's not that every life is a work of art. I think it's Ann Patchett, as I'm stealing her. But um, but I think her point is when you see artists do that, transform the muddy, the muddy silt into a gold ring, it gives you understanding of how you can take the muddy river of your life and make it something portable and precious that you can carry with you. And so to be trained as a storyteller is that, you know, that you're able to make sense of things. But if all the stories around you don't give you guidance or have any relevance to how your life might have been lived, um, how do you piece that together? Um, and so one of the things that we do at the lab is really understanding other people's stories and also in other languages, but also taking really familiar stories and queering the narrative. So. So, you know, Superman, the earliest kind of conventional superhero in the DC comic universe, is this American history of superheroes. He's the ultimate undocumented alien, right? Right. So being able to think of Superman as a kind of immigrant narrative and, you know, in terms of concealment, in terms of transgression, um, that's the kind of thing we want to do. And you know that we ran the whole Casablanca event for the same reason, that uh, not only because this is the 75th anniversary of, of Casablanca, but Casablanca, especially in this moment in time, struck me so much about migrancy, border control, and it happened to be about white Europeans finding refuge in Northern Africa. I mean, I felt like how more relevant and kind of role reversal can we get in terms of this moment in time? Um, and also the age of production versus age of representation that, you know, it was written in 1941, uh, filmed and uh, came out in 1942 in a moment of radical uncertainty in the war. But what they embody and modeled is the possibility of art to predict and to model radical hope, right? You know, Jonathan Lear's phrase. And to say, we will beat the Nazis in 1941. 
not true, not, not a given, right? But that they were able to tell that kind of story as if it had happened. And uh, the other thing, of course, in, the, in terms of actual production, we all remember Madeleine Lebeau, who sings, you know, La Marseillaise, and, you know, and Conrad Veidt playing Victor Laszlo, who guides the whole, you know, Rick's American Cafe into song. A lot of them, almost the entire production team, both in front of behind the camera of Casablanca, were uh, refugees or migrants in one way or another. She was a, she was a refugee from Vichy, France, because her husband was Jewish. Conrad Veidt, who plays, of course, the evil Nazi in the film, you know, he was a he was a conscientious objector, right? He refused when he was asked to declare his ethnicity in 1930s Germany, and he was a superstar. He wrote Jew. He was not Jewish by ethnicity, but it was a show of solidarity. And when they asked him to change, he decided to migrate to Hollywood. Of course, he spent the rest of his career playing Nazis, but you know. But what I mean is, so I I, I use Casablanca as an example because Casablanca seems like the ultimate beautiful, polished Hollywood product that tells a mainstream story of good versus evil. But when you take it apart, when you kind of really think about how it was made, who was made by, how we watch it now, and what kind of resonances it might have for a young migrant, you know, what it might mean to a young refugee. By opening up the text this way, we suddenly make it meaningful, relevant, accessible, and hopefully inspiring of new stories. And so that's what we try to do. We take mainstream things and we try to queer it and open it up. And we also try to bring things that are unheard or untold into the light. And Chinatown's uh, or whatever course I teach is always a kind of amalgam, those two impulses. Yeah, and I suppose that is very much you bring your public facing scholarship. Yes, yes, yes. So one of the reasons for Story Lab, but I, say, I think the larger mandate of these humanities labs at Duke is public facing scholarship. We want the community to come in. We want we want to not think of uh, knowledge or learning as limited to the university and also not limited to certain sectors of the university. One thing that we're most proud of is staff come to all our events, that, that this is a space of learning and space of transformation. And we shouldn't limit it to only, say, undergraduate students or, you know, or faculty working in a particular area of research. But that um, by creating a physical space, and actually that is the point of Chinatowns too, that when you have a solidity of space, people come, people do stuff in places. Um, so we even have poetry reading um, sessions and we also have creative writing Fridays and just have people come and write. And we have all sorts of random people to show them and write or eat snacks. But, <laughs> but the idea is that you don't have to be in a creative writing program or a writer um, to feel like you are empowered. You just come in and share the space and there are other people, you know, writing in their notebooks or typing on their laptops. And so you feel welcome. Yeah, I know it's incredibly successful. So congratulations for oh, bringing this thank you. program. Thank you. So to finish off, we have a quick fire round. So your favorite Chinese food? That's so hard. I'll say kanji, xifan. I'm Southern, you know, my family's from Southern China. It's childhood comfort food. So number two is your favorite place in greater China. So I, of course, um, will have to be loyal and say Taipei. I was born in Taipei and grew up there um, and still return. And if you want to narrow it down, I actually grew up on the campus of Suchao University in Taipei, which is in Waishangxi. And it's right next to two venerable institutions. One of them is gone, but one was the Central Motion Pictures movie studio and then also um, the National Palace Museum. So we spent all our childhoods 
going to either one or the other. And I'm, a, I'm an extra in a lot of 70s films, 80s films, because they sometimes would hire us for the day to what? be extras in the movies that were being filmed. So you and I share a career in, as being extras. Yes. Because I grew up in a small village in the Cotswolds where they film a lot of period dramas. Oh my god. Well, you probably had cooler costumes. I had the funny sort of curly wigs. Oh, excellent. Excellent. The awkward feeling. No wonder we're time. friends. No, we, um, they would just give us these like totally, I'm sure, non-historically accurate like chinese clothes and then we were just like peasant kids in the back. So I would say that particular little area of Taipei. So the third question is your favorite Chinese phrase. How is this a fast round? That's a hard question. Um, because there's so many narcissist narcissistic things I can say, like the poem that makes up my name. <laughs> but oh, that's cute. But um, you know, Liu Chinese Manzhi, right? So, but um, but I was just telling someone this today that I really like. Um, uh, do you know Tina Liu? Who's uh, she's also alum. She's a professor at Yale, and she's going to be the new. Um, head of college, Polly Murray College at Yale, and she was trying to come up with phrases, um, Chinese phrases, and I suggested zhi zhi wei zhi zhi, bu zhi wei bu zhi, shi zhi ye. So it's a Confucian phrase, and it means, um, so my grandfather's pen name, he was an old-time journalist, and so one of my jobs is actually I direct the Shou Institute of Chinese Journalism in Taipei at Shixing University, a university he founded. And his given name is Chen Ping, and his pen name, which he adopted uh, in his late teens when he was already a famous journalist, was Chen Shouwo. And so the phrase that he got it from was, of course, Shouwo Qi Shei. But when my son was six or seven, first grade or second grade, had an assignment about writing a biography of someone in his family, he ended up writing a biography of Chen Shouwo, you know, his great-grandfather, my grandfather, and I narrate the story and he wrote it down. So I explain what Shouwo Qi Shei means, and so I will say my favorite phrase is my son Teo's translation of that phrase, which is, if it ain't gonna be me, who's it gonna be? So Shouwo Qi Shei. Our fourth theoretically quickfire question. <laughs> oh, is this quickfire? I know. I know. Um, but... A book that you have read recently on China that you would recommend? The book I was reading last night is actually not strictly about China nor written in Chinese, but is the memoir by the author Yun Li called Dear Friend from This Life, I Write to You in Your Life. She's a novelist who is Chinese by descent, but chooses to write in English. And so much like Hajin, um, she's a brilliant and beautiful writer. And this is her first nonfiction work, a memoir. And it's it's a pretty harrowing story of, of depression and of, of suicide attempts and sort of a traumatic childhood in China. But she takes this phrase, her title phrase, from a letter or journal by Catherine Mansfield. And she becomes obsessed with this notion of telling a story across time and distance, but also the connection of friendship. But I just, I love that phrase so much. Dear friend from this life, I write to you in your life. So I would recommend that book. Um, and our final question is, uh, because we are a university, a really? class that you took that changed your thinking about China one way or the other. Can I name several? Do I offend other professors? <laughs> uh, I, I should preface this by saying I was undergraduate at Harvard. But one of the first courses I took at Harvard was actually A13, 
then fondly known as from Yao to Mao, and it was taught by Dui Ming. It was a 500-person course, but the reason it changed my life maybe goes back to all these things we're talking about. I probably took it for an easy A because I knew, you know, I moved here for college, so I knew a lot of the history. And so I came in thinking I knew what he was going to talk about, but I had never heard Chinese history taught in English. So in the first day, I saw uh, Dui Ming stand on stage in Sanders, you know, in a room full of 500 people at Harvard, my first semester freshman year, I burst out in tears. And it's very funny because Wei Ming has now, of course, long been a friend and a colleague, and also actually he's a family friend. But in that moment, uh, maybe representation mattered, that to see this Chinese professor in a giant hall at Harvard meant something to me as a 17-year-old. You know, it, it had a transformative moment. Um, the other thing was to learn one's history in a different language. You know, so to, to learn my own history about things I thought I knew very well, but, you know, in textbooks and languages and books that uh, were not my own. But also, it both was eye-opening, and some of it was maybe Orientalist, and some of it was what I consider inaccurate, but some of it was incredibly enlightening and powerful and transformative, and also made me realize that maybe a Chinese disease is always thinking that you yourself can represent all of Chineseness, especially as someone who is a Chinese elite, right? That you your experience is somehow reflective of billions of people's experiences of being Chinese. And so to be even confronted with other people's and other subjectivities of who also claim Chineseness was really, really important for me early on to see that there are infinite stories to be told about being Chinese and probably leads to all my research interests at this particular moment and also my teaching philosophy. Well, Aileen Chow, thank you so much for thank coming you, and James. being on the podcast with us today. Yes, thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and other podcast providers. 